0: Hey everyone, it's great to be here with you guys tonight. Thanks again, Rosie and you guys. That was awesome. Cool. Um, so t- tonight we're starting a two-week series. Some of you guys would have seen on Facebook um, called Biblical Sexuality. It's a really small series about a really big topic. <laughs> so we've got two weeks, and there's a lot to talk about. I guess there's a lot to say, um, and obviously this. This topic is is huge um, for so many reasons. So I just want to take a few minutes kind of to almost just preface the next two weeks and then sort of give you a bit of an overview and then get into sort of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, yeah, so we, we had planned to sort of talk about this earlier in the year. We were sort of starting to think about it and a few months ago made a decision to do that. And then um, it's been made a bit more complicated now. There's some politics, there's a plebiscite. There's other things like that. And all I want to say right up, straight up, off the bat is that this is not at all politically motivated. Um, I don't really want to talk about politics at all. Um, That's, in my mind, is pretty much a separate issue, that that you can make up your own mind about that, you can decide what you want to do about that, but the the goal in this is is to look at this whole topic of sexuality and look at just what does the Bible say? And and say, let's let's see, what does God's Word say? and in a lot of ways, right, Christians or the church often has the, the the view of our culture is that our sort of sexual ethic or our view on sexuality is, is just weird and wrong and evil. And sometimes we don't really have a response because sometimes all we've been told is rules, like don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And And it's sort of like we might even be confused, like why? Like why God? And... Basically, the sort of goal over the next two weeks is, is to look at what, is, what does God say about our sexuality, what does God say about sex and all these issues, and how is it good? How is it actually good news? Because we think that God is good, so what, what God thinks, God's design, God's plan, God's word is good, and we want to see it as good and, and see it as good for everybody. So that's, that's sort of the goal is, is to look at what does God say and, and how is it actually good? Um, I want to say two two things though before before we start. Firstly, this is um, obviously we're talking about sexuality is incredibly close to home for everybody. Um, incredible some of the some of the issues and and, and tensions around this whole thing is um, very emotional, um, very personal, very complex. Um, it's just huge. So two things really. It means that we need to talk about it. Like we need to have a place where we can talk, we can discuss, we can share. Um, one of Dave's sayings is that we don't have any lumpy carpet, like we can, we can share and express opinions. Um, so therefore, you're free to disagree and you're still welcome here. You, you can think what you like, you need to come to your own conclusions. Like always, we, we share what we think Scripture's teaching and, and it's up to your, you to, to decide if you agree and you to do your own research, do your own study. And if you disagree, that's okay, you're welcome here. But but let's dialogue. Let's talk through it. So if, if you do have issues with anything I say or, or Dave's saying in the morning over the next two weeks, please come and talk to us. We'd like to listen to you. Please please come and share with us as well. So the second thing is that in this whole sort of discussion, in this whole sort of, we kind of want to talk about this stuff. There's a need for a whole lot of grace, um, grace and patience and love for each other. So I'm asking for your grace, and I'm asking that in your discussions with other people, you have grace. Some of you guys have probably seen some stuff on Facebook that lacks grace, that there can be some pretty full-on heated discussions, and um, we just want to be able to talk, but with grace as well. So sort of the plan for the next two weeks is today to basically do what I said before, look at what does the Bible say and how is it good news, what's like the big picture God's design, God's plan for sex and sexuality. Then next week we're going to talk a bit more specifically about same-sex attraction. So we're going we're gonna to do that next week. This week is just sort of looking at the big overview, God's design and God's plan. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll do that. Father, thank you so much that you're our God and you're good. Thank you that you've made us. Thank you for how you've made us. And Lord, we just ask that you would um, yeah, just show us how, how your word is good and show us your good design, your good plan. Um, yeah, God, we, we need you. This is this is massive and close to home for all of us. And we just pray, God, that you would speak truth into our hearts tonight by your Holy Spirit. I ask for freedom and joy and peace and love and grace. And I just pray that we would be more and more of a community of truth and grace. We just pray that in your name. Amen. Cool. So kind of what I was saying before is all linked up. And what I'm going to talk about lots tonight is just this idea of purpose. Are you able just to click on that um, slide, no, it should. There we go. It's just purpose. So, so basically, so, sometimes the way Christians talk about sex is kind of just like a whole lot of no's. Like, not outside of marriage, not adultery, not all these things, no, no, no. But, but there's not really this perspective of why. Like, what's the purpose? Because if you don't understand the purpose of something, it's hard to say whether it's good. Or bad. I don't know if you guys are like me around Christmas time. I think it might like be the introvert in me, but I get kind of nervous sometimes when you get presents, because like if someone gives you a present, like you want to be thankful and excited. So there's this like anticipation of like yes, I'm getting a present, but there's also this nervousness of like oh, what if I don't like it? Or what if it's not really what I wanted? So you're sort of like hoping hoping it's something that will be good, and if it's not, you're trying to come up with something like, oh thanks, I really wanted one of those. Like you kind of come up with some sort of explanation. And this happened to me last Christmas. Um, Tam's mum, my mother-in-law, gave me this present and I opened it, and and I don't think anyone was re-watching it, but seriously, this is this is what I did with it. I was like, uh-huh. It's wooden. And I like went like this. And I, and I was like, it's not a table. And, and I, was, like, I was getting nervous because I'm like, I have no idea what this thing is. And then I just kind of just put it to the side <laughs> and just sort of, <laughs> just hope that no one sort of saw. <laughs> and then like a few minutes later, someone, I don't know if it was Tam or her mom or someone was like, oh, do you like it? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like <laughs> and, and then, but then they told me what it is. And, and what it is tells me what it's for. And as soon as I understood what it is and what it's for, it's awesome. I don't know if you guys know what it is. This is what it is. It's a recipe book stand. <laughs> it's awesome. It's so good. It's like a music stand for cookbooks. Right? <laughs> so this actually goes like on your kitchen bench. And that's what these things are for, to like hold it up. And like, you can open your book. And you've got your recipe there, and it doesn't get wet and it doesn't get stuff on it, and then you've got more bench space, so it's, so it's kind of nerdy. But um, <laughs> you can see, like, I had no idea what this thing was for, and I just think, oh, it's just a bit of wood. And then as soon as I understand what it's for, I'm like, this is really good. And I actually, like, I think I even appreciate this more now. And I, like, it, like, folds up, and you just sort of, we've got to spot it in our pantry, just, like, store it really easily. It's, it's really cool, right? So, but if you have no idea what something's for, like, if you don't know its purpose, they, they had to tell me it, and then I realized, like, it's good. I'm going to give you like 30 seconds. If you can just have a look at this, turn to someone next to you. What do you think that is for? Okay, anyone want to guess? Just yell it out, chandelier. (laughs) It's for, yeah Robin? Yeah, it's for washing clothes. Cool. That makes sense now, right? If you had no idea what that was, you're probably like, what is this thing? So... If you, don't, if, if you don't know the purpose for something, it just doesn't make sense, right? But it's really, it, it's interesting that you can't tell the purpose of something just by looking at it, if you don't know what it is. This is a quote, it's a little bit long, but it's by a guy named Leslie Newbegin. and he sort of explains how purpose is personal. It has to do with the person who designed. This is what he says. Purpose is a personal word. People entertain purposes and seek to realize them. Things, inanimate objects like washing machines or recipe book stands, do not have purposes of their own. An inanimate object such as a machine may embody purpose, but it's the purpose of the designer, not its own. Does that, does that make sense? So the, perp- the person who designed it had a purpose, and the, the object embodies that, but the object itself has no purpose because only people can have purposes. If I come across a piece of machinery or equipment like the washing machine, and I've got no idea of its purpose, I can take it to pieces and discover how it works. But that will not explain what it's for. Either the designer or someone who knows how to use it successfully for the purpose which it was designed will have to tell me. So someone has to tell you it's a recipe book stand. I have to tell you it's a washing machine. The person who designed it or someone who knows has to explain. And because it's personal, there will have to be personal communication. In all personal communication, there has to be trust because they might be a liar. He might be trying to play a trick on me. If I'm to use the machine successfully, I'll have to trust him. At least provisionally, and try it out; then he says this: only if I know the purpose for which something was designed, can I say that it is good or bad so it 's hard for us to say judgments particularly about about sexuality, whether something is good or bad, if we don 't know the purpose for which it is designed so that 's sort of how we 're sort of framing everything tonight, and where we 're just going to start with is, is thinking about this like actually what is the purpose of sex and as christians right we we believe that god created and god designed so he he has a purpose but it's interesting right because in in sort of general terms really our, our culture or our society which is which is quite secular really doesn't believe there really is a designer or doesn't live as if there is a designer it, it, we kind of live as if there's no God and therefore as if there's no real ultimate purpose. So, so there isn't really a purpose to anything. It's just kind of what we decide is the purpose. So, so when we're discussing this like in the culture, really what the culture defines as the purpose for sex, it really when it comes down to it's kind of just like play for adults. It's just like this, this is just a thing that people do that if you're an adult and there's someone else who's an adult and you consent... It's it's fun. It's pleasurable. That there's obviously it, it's the way to make children as well. But but really, like in, in general, that's kind of the way the culture talks about sex, or kind of doesn't doesn't really see it as really being for much more than that. Um, which then makes sense, kind of like well, if there's if there's rules around it, like that's kind of just spoiling it. Why not just let people who agree have fun? But we believe that Jesus. Is, is the designer, is the creator of the world. We believe that, that there's actually a person behind everything, that he actually has a design, that he actually has intention, that he actually has purpose. So what what is his actual purpose for sex? Because like I was saying, some, sometimes the church hasn't really gone down that path. That sometimes sometimes Christians or or, 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 or or preachers or the church can kind of just... Almost accept the culture's definition of sex, but just say yes. It's just it's just a fun, good thing, but it's just for marriage, and and it's kind of there's, there's not this this different purpose. It's just a rule around it, but Jesus actually has a purpose for it. It's actually for something. If we understand what it's for, we can see why some of the rules around it would be actually good. So I'm going to look at we're going to look at a passage in Matthew 19 tonight, and in this passage, um. Jesus is, is being asked about divorce, so it's kind of around the topic of divorce. We're not really going to talk about that too much tonight, though. What we're trying to do is, is, is think, what is Jesus defining as the purpose for sex? So this is the context, right? The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, there are trying to like, push Jesus up against the wall. They're trying to um, press him, get him to say the wrong thing. So they've asked him a question about divorce. right? And this is his response. And as we read his response, I want you to, to think about what, he, what he's saying about what could be the purpose of sex. So this is what Jesus says, right? The, the, Jesus just sort of like has a go at the religious leaders, right, to start with, because they've asked him this question. He goes, haven't you read? Like, haven't you read the Bible? Like, and, and then he quotes Genesis, like the very first part of the Bible. Haven't you read the very first bit? Like, and, and this is what he says, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh this 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 verse that, that what jesus does he quotes genesis 1 and then he quotes genesis 2 kind of together he's going right back to the creation and he says this amazing thing that that that's referencing sex of two becoming one flesh and then he keeps going he says this so they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what god has joined together let no one separate. What, this, this verse is actually quoted a number of times throughout the Bible. It's even quoted um, by Paul in, in 1 Corinthians as well. And, he, and he's talking about, um, he's talking to the Corinthians and saying for them not to go and sleep with prostitutes. And the reason why he gives is because those who do become one flesh with a the, with the prostitute. And he says, don't do that. You don't want to become one flesh. And this idea, right, is, is this, this one flesh union. That God's purpose for sex is that it's, it's not just this sort of fun, pleasurable thing. It's actually something that unites and binds people together so that they're not even two, but one. Like, that is his purpose for it. Which, when, when you understand that, that he's designed it to, to be this uniting thing, it makes sense that it would be in, in the context of marriage. Because if it's this uniting thing, it wouldn't make sense to be united physically but not emotionally, and not financially, and not with the whole life commitment. He's actually designed this thing that, that, that it is a physical connection, but it's not just that. It's actually two becoming one. It's this binding, it's this uniting. That, 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 that's actually the purpose for it. Which is really interesting, because it's, it's actually like a higher view of sex in the culture. The culture sort of says, it's just something that you do with your bodies, it, it doesn't really mean anything or do anything. It just feels good. But, but the scripture says that it actually unites and binds and joins you to another person, and that what it 's for is is to make these two people become one. Tim Keller talks about this as well and, and he references that like this his summary for it is, is sex is for whole life self giving which which makes sense again why there will be some of these rules around it in scripture or, or why God says' not to do certain things because if, if you are with someone, and then you have this one flesh connection and then break it, and then with someone else and have this one flesh connection and then break it, it, it it's going to lead to a mess, right? It, it's meant to be this, this one flesh connection that makes two people one. He keeps talking about it. This is Tim Keller. He says, Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong to you completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. So this is, this is God's intention and God's design and his purpose for this. That, that it's this one flesh union. And, and, it, and it makes sense right? when, when you think about the, just the vulnerability, the, the intimacy, the closeness that happens. And, and just the commitment that happens and the love that happens. And so it's this, bu- this beautiful thing that, that in, in this, if, if it's in this relationship of, of whole life commitment, then people are continually con- committing themselves to each other again and again. And it fosters this close, intimate, one flesh relationship. That, that That's his design and his purpose for it. But... Like, why, why is that the design and purpose for it? Like, we can sort of keep asking why. Like, like, why does God care about us having a one flesh union? Like, why does he make two become one? And, and like, as you keep asking why questions, it's almost like here's a big picture, and then you have to step back and say, say what's the bigger picture? And this year we've been talking a bit about stories and how, like, like we resonate with stories and we connect with stories. And, and the reason is, is because we're in a story right like like the best way to understand life is is and understand history is that it's actually a story that that, that is still going and it's not finished it, it started and it, and it's going somewhere the best way to understand the bible is as a story that, that it's got it's got a beginning it's got it's got a plot it's got a middle and it's got a culmination that's going to happen but it hasn't even happened yet that we're still in this story and the interesting thing is that this one flesh relationship or or we're gonna, we're going to call marriage that in this story, it actually has a really important part to play in, in almost what we're talking about now is like the purpose of life or, or the purpose of God's story and God's narrative. So, I want to quickly talk you through three key parts in the Bible that reference this one flesh union or marriage and, and how it actually points to the plot line of the story. God actually has an, a bigger purpose in it as well. Like, so, what we're trying to do, if you've you you lost me in that plot, what we're trying to say is why does God have want a one flesh union? why is that important to god i'm just going i'm not going to look at these passages i'm just going to summarize them but we see something really interesting in genesis 1 and 2 so right this is right at the start of the story the start of the bible god it says god creates the heavens and the earth and there's all these dualities creates the heavens and the earth the land and the and and the sea right this evening and this morning and then right at the, the sort of the pinnacle of god's creation That The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, like this triune God, creates people in their image. And it says he creates them in the image of God, male and female. And again, there's this duality. And so this is this right at the start of the story in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, it has the two shall become one flesh. Right, so this this is important to the plot line of the story. As we keep going on, though, we see that in Ephesians, so after Jesus has come, and, and Paul, the Apostle, teaching the church, and he's teaching people about marriage. But he says something amazing about marriage. He says that it actually points to something bigger than itself, that, that marriage actually points to Christ and the church. And that, that a husband in a marriage relationship represents Jesus, and, and, the, and the wife represents the church, and there's this one-flesh union. There's this, there's this oneness. And when you look back throughout the Bible, God actually refers to himself as a, as a bridegroom and his people as his bride. And that the God, what God is actually doing in history is actually creating a people for himself that he can be one with. And he, this is his, his intention and his design from the start. And we see it in Jesus, that Jesus has now sacrificed himself for these people, who are his people, the church, that's us, that we're actually one with him, like, like a one flesh relationship that's it, it, similar to marriage. And that right at the very end of the story, The end of the bible which is like the culmination of history the dualities come together there's a new heavens and a new earth that are joined that are one and at this time there's a wedding and it's called the marriage supper of the lamb that jesus is 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 married to his people which means that that god's intention in this one flesh union and in marriage is actually that it points to something bigger than that. Marriage and, and this one flesh union, right, sex in the context of marriage, actually then points, it's like it's something that points to something bigger than itself, to, to what is actually like the main plot line of all of history. Because the purpose of life, right, is not romantic and sexual fulfillment. The purpose of life is knowing God and fulfilling his purpose, and his purpose is to create a people that he can be one with. So. This, this like elevates and, is, again, is a higher view of, of sex and marriage, that, that God actually has designed it because it points to what is bigger. It points to what God actually wants, which is a people that he will be one with. That, that This is like this higher view of marriage, but in some ways it, it's a different view, right? Because it says it's not the ultimate thing. Like our culture, in, in many ways, the, the story of our culture, the story of sort of modern society is that it's about happiness, right? And, and the highest form of happiness is romantic and sexual fulfillment, and, that, and that's kind of it. But, but what we say is that God actually has a purpose in that, and it points to what is ultimate, which is knowing him and, and being his people and serving him and following him in the world. So if, if this is the purpose, though, this can be incredibly freeing because it means that, 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 that marriage is not about self-satisfaction it's not necessarily about happiness. It's about reflecting and knowing God. But knowing that actually can make it more fulfilling because, it, because it's not an end in itself. It's actually something that points to something bigger than itself. But then what about, like, like what I've painted there is like a picture of marriage right, and God's purpose in it, which is, which is why he cares about this one flesh union. But what about those who can't marry? Or what about those who will never marry? What about those who don't want to marry? Like like what I've painted probably sounds a little bit like, oh, they just sort of miss out. They don't get to point to anything. And in some ways, right, our culture kind of, again, kind of says that. Like if romantic sexual fulfillment is like the highest, for someone to, to never have that, that's like a life that's not worth living almost, like to, to, to never be able to never to be able to be with someone, to never be able to be married to someone, that, that, that's kind of like, that's just terrible. But again, we're, we're different to our culture, and Jesus actually shows that celibacy, a life without sex at all, is actually legitimate, which sounds crazy, but it's interesting. right? This, we're going to go back to this passage in Matthew 19. And what, what has happened is, is Jesus has been talking about this one flesh union. He's been talking about marriage. And then they come back at him and say, well, what about divorce? Couldn't, couldn't someone just give a certificate of divorce? Like if they were just a bit upset or didn't, they weren't getting along with their wife, could they just divorce them? And Jesus again comes back to this one flesh union, right? And he says, basically, no. Like this, this is, when people are bound like this, it's, it's for life. Unless it's broken. Unless one person dies. Or unless some person breaks it by being with somebody else. And like I said, we're not talking about divorce tonight, so I don't want to get into the details of that. But that, in this passage, that's Jesus' response. And then this is the disciples' response. This is really interesting. So basically, Jesus is saying, like, if you're, if you're married, if you're one flesh with someone, this is, you're, you're united to them for life. And the disciples' response is this. If this is the situation with a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. That's interesting, right? So Jesus' teaching on marriage... On the seriousness of it, of the seriousness of this commitment, causes the disciples to say, uh, maybe it would be better not to do that. Maybe be better not to be bound and joined to someone for life. That sounds hard. But Jesus doesn't then say, no, 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 you should really get married. A life without marriage is not, not really worth living. No, no, no. This is what Jesus says Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. Then he starts talking about eunuchs. If you don't know what a eunuch is, I'll let you look that up. <laughs> basically, basically, someone who, who can't have sex for some reason or chooses not to have sex. So this is what Jesus says, right? For so there are eunuchs who were born that way. There's people who, who can't. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. So there's people who have been, been... Something's happened to them or someone's done something to them that they, they cannot have sex with anybody. And then there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of... Of the kingdom. The one who can accept this should accept it. And this is amazing in, in this situation, right? The disciples have just said to Jesus, like, marriage looks really hard, and then Jesus says, Then you can be celibate. You don't have to marry. You don't have to have sex. Some people that's that's just their, their, their lot in life, that's that's how they were born, they don't have another option. Some people choose that option for the sake of the kingdom. And Jesus actually like legitimizes this. And this is how Jesus lived as well, right? Like Jesus never had sex. Jesus wasn't married. Like and, and, and many people around his age would be. But then the Bible actually has this a lot to say about singleness and, and its purpose. And and like I was saying, that marriage can point to something greater. Singleness can also point to something greater as well. Jesus again later on, again the religious leaders are trying to put him in a corner and, 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 and pin him to something and they ask him this question about marriage and like if someone's married and then dies and then someone else like remarries, they're married multiple times, who are they gonna be married to in heaven? That's a really rough paraphrase of that. But this is what Jesus says. You are in error because you know neither the scriptures of the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. Jesus says straight right here, you're not gonna be married in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. That, that people who are married here won't be married there. So, so when, when we're tempted to make marriage the ultimate thing, marriage is not even eternal. Like What's eternal is knowing God and being connected to God. And those who live a celibate life now are actually pointing to the fact that in heaven there will be no marriage. They're actually pointing to the fact that, that we will be one. And, and this is what Jesus, Jesus prays in John 17. He doesn't, he doesn't pray for everyone to have good marriages. He prays that we will be one. Like him and the Father, one that all believers will be one, and this is actually what heaven will be like. So, so those who embrace a, a single life now are, are pointing to that day. They're pointing to to say life is not about romantic and sexual fulfillment now. Life is about fulfillment in the kingdom of God, where we'll all be one together. And it points and says that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is the one that satisfies. And I'm not I'm not downplaying playing marriage. But, but it's, it, it, it in itself will not satisfy. In, in God, it's satisfying. But, but it's God, that the, this one, that we need. Then Paul also really legitimizes singleness and celibacy. He, he was probably widowed. So he probably had a wife and she, pro, she probably died. And then now he's embraced a life of singleness. And he actually encourages people to embrace a life of singleness. And it's really interesting, his reasonings. This is what he says. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. Someone who's not married can really focus on God. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world how she can please her husband Do you see what he's saying those who those who are single have a freedom to focus on God and devote to God that married people don't have and and he's saying that there is a freedom this is what he says I'm saying this for your own good not to restrict you he's not saying that you can't get married if you want to but he's saying that you don't have to Not to restrict you, but that you may live a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And this is why I think this is good news, because the point of life is not to get married. The point of life is to know God and fulfill His purposes. The point of life is to be devoted to God. And for some people, that will look like getting married. That will be the best way that they can devote themselves to God. For other people, being single will be the best way that they can devote themselves to God. But the point is not getting married or or being single. The point is God. Like, Like, that's... That's what we believe as Christians, that, that he's the one that satisfies. And, and I think it, it makes these things more satisfying, like I was saying. Like, it, it, there's benefits to both. The, the, those who are married, marry and, and love as they love their wife or their husband, they reflect God. that they, they image God. Those who are single, they, they, they reflect God and his goodness and his sufficiency, and they point people to him and they can serve him in a, in a different freedom as well. Now... Obviously as well though, these can be done badly. Someone can be married and not reflect God well and, and, and even bring bring shame to God. Someone can be single and, and not reflect God, not devote themselves to God. It, it's really about the person and the attitude in that time. So what I've been trying to do is, is give you right this, this this broad brush picture. And I'm just gonna really summarise and then we'll sort of almost finish. And I've gone a little bit long tonight, but Basically, we said, like, understanding the purpose is what's important, right? And, and, and in, for Jesus, in, in the scriptures, the purpose of sex is actually this uniting, binding thing that, that becomes one flesh. And we see God's purpose in that is, is he's teaching us what it will be like when we're united to him. He's teaching us what it is like to have oneness and unity and diversity, which is what God is like, right? It reflects God, God is three in one, and marriage is two become one. It, it, it reflects him. But, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to know him and to serve him and to be with him. Therefore, this really legitimizes singleness because those who are single can some, in some ways fulfill the greater purpose better, or maybe more free to. But both, both whatever, whatever works best in people's devotion to the Lord. So this is like this grand design, right? God's intention, God's purpose. But the truth is... That, that everyone's stuffed it up. Like, everyone has broken this purpose. Like, God has this grand plan, and everyone's fallen short of it. And, and this is so important, especially, like, in the current climate, um, it, it just, just in our society, for us as Christians to really acknowledge that everyone is sexually broken. All of us. Like, we're all in the same boat. We've all fallen short of this grand design that God has in some way or another. There's this great story in John, right? Where there's this woman who has been married, who's had this one flesh union with her husband, and she's broken it. She's been united to another man. She's committed adultery. She's, she's broken God's grand design, God's intention for, for, for this good thing that he's made. She's misused it. And the religious leaders, like, they grab her and they drag her before Jesus and they throw her down before Jesus. And, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing the story, but basically what they're saying is, look, she has broken this grand design. She's broken the one flesh unit. She's, she's dishonored God's plan for marriage and for sexuality She 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 deserves to be stoned. That was that was the law for for committing adultery. And she they, they drag her before Jesus again. They're trying to like pin Jesus against the wall. And they're saying, What should we do? And it's interesting, you can imagine all these men are standing around looking down on her in judgment because she's broken this design. And this is Jesus' design, right? Like he's the creator. He's the one who had this intention, this purpose for sexuality, for life, for, for everything. And he's standing there, and she's broken it, and she's before him. And you might know the story. And Jesus says, basically, again, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus basically agrees with them. Yeah, she's broken it. She's fallen short of it. She's not fulfilled it. And then he says, any one of you who have not broken it, you can throw a stone at her. He says, those who are without sin cast the first stone. And if you know the story, they slowly, imagine this, this, this mob of men are just convicted because all of them have broken it as well. All of them have fallen short in some way, even if it's just in the heart or in the thought. And they start to drop their stones, they start to leave, they start to walk away. And and this lady's left there with Jesus. And Jesus is the one person who hasn't broken it. Jesus is the one person who's completely fulfilled God's design for sexuality, who's been completely pure, who's been completely devoted to his Father. And he's the one person who could condemn her. And Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And then he says, "Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more." And and the the gospel is that Jesus could have take could have have condemned her because she has broken this good design that he does care about. But instead of condemning her, he was condemned. He took her stoning. He took her punishment. On himself and he takes all of our sexual brokenness all of our sin all the things that we've done wrong when we've fallen short of this he takes it and he dies for it and he offers us grace and what we see in Jesus right in this interaction which something that I think is so important for everything but particularly for this topic right is that Jesus holds to the truth Jesus doesn't say no it's okay it doesn't matter that you've broken this design now, he, he holds to the truth, but then he shows her grace. And we see in Jesus, and John says about Jesus, that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And that's, that's who he is. And, and, and it, as we think about this, this topic and as we, as we walk in our lives, but, but particularly around sexuality, we need to be people. We need to be a community that holds to the truth of God's word. That, that values his design, that values his intentions, that values his plan, but that holds to the grace of the gospel that we all fall short and he forgives us and he, he, he heals us and he tells us to get up and keep going. And, and that we are all in this together, that we are all sexually broken in some way. Jesus says to everybody, repent and believe the good news. He says to everybody, your desires are disordered. We're not lined up with God's ways. We're going a different way. But he says, turn, follow my way, believe the good news. Believe and follow me. There's grace and truth. And that's why I think this is such good news, right? Because there is truth. There is purpose. There is, there is intention around how God has made us. The fact that God has made us sexual is good. I don't know. Some of you may even... Think that it's bad like there's this part of you that you hate like like why, why did god make me like this this is so terrible i don't want these desires god has made us sexual and it's good that there's truth around that and that there's grace when we fall short of that which is why so, it's such good news i think for us so maybe the band wants to come back up and just as we finish like like i said before like this is this is massive and this is close to home and this this is intense for all of us and our desire for this place is that this is a place of grace and truth and that this is a place that you can share openly because we are all in this together we all fall short we all struggle we all need grace we all need each other so if you are struggling and you need to talk to someone i would love to listen to you dave would love to listen to you other people would love to listen to you often especially sexual stuff just hard when it's kept in the dark and sometimes just bringing to the light and can bring healing so, so if you need that we are here for you we want to be a community where that's safe